everybody. So I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. Now, those of you who watch this show regularly know I am fond of food metaphors. So to extend those images, here's what we've got this week. We were going to eat mostly Italian, but with a kind of Chinese chaser. So we're going to start, like, it's as if we're going to have a big plate of pasta, then a big plate of meatballs, and then maybe finish up with some fortune cookies. Here's what's on the menu. First, Georgia on my mind. Post-fascist politician Georgia Maloney is the big winner in Italian elections on Sunday. She is now poised to become the country's first female prime minister, and it's part of a kind of right-wing, ultra-nationalist, populist wave that is cresting across Europe, from Sweden to the Czech Republic, from Poland to Hungary to France, and now in Italy. In the abstract, you might think this is something that would alarm Pope Francis, but actually, Francis and Maloney may be set to do business on one important issue. We will explain what's going on there. Then second, weekend, not at Bernie's, but at Frankie's. Pope Francis has a big weekend. On Saturday, he goes to Assisi to sign a pact with young entrepreneurs about the global economy. And on Sunday, he's in Matera, the southern Italian city, ostensibly to close a Eucharistic Congress, but in many ways also to shine a spotlight on the peripheries next door. We'll sort of break down all of that action. Then, spat over a spot. A new Italian TV commercial has got tongues wagging, and also suggests that Catholicism in Italy, despite all of its problems, may actually have some gas left in the tank. And then finally, the challenges of China. Cardinal Joseph Zen, his trial in China in Hong Kong begins today, and a highly respected Italian cardinal has turned up the heat on the Vatican to come more fulsomely to the defense of Cardinal Zen. We will also analyze everything that's going on there. That's what's on the menu for last week in the church this week, so please stick around. So happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy Tuesday in late September 2022. We begin this week with the Italian elections. So Italy had national elections over the weekend on Sunday. And as expected, the big winner in these elections was, well, what the Italians would call the cento destra, that is the center right, led by the Fratelli Italia party of Giorgia Maloney. Giorgia Maloney who is a 45-year-old woman, is now poised to become Italy's first-ever female prime minister after being the big winner in this ballot. The Fratelli d'Italia party finished with, a, with about 27% of the national vote, making it by far the first party in Italy. Now, 
here's the thing. What is bothering most people about Georgia Maloney's big win in the Italian elections isn't so much her policies. Her policies are, quite frankly, fairly conventionally conservative. She is anti-tax. She doesn't like big taxes. She is in favor of small-scale Italian businesses. She is opposed to social liberalism and in favor of traditional values. She is cautious about illegal immigration. All of that could be said of, say, the Tories in the UK. It could be said of the Republican Party in the United States. It could be said of any other conservative establishment party anywhere in the world. And Maloney has explicitly compared herself to the Tories in the UK and the Republicans in the US. So you might ask, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that Georgia Maloney is what I suppose in the argot of journalism would be described as a post-fascist politician. She got her start as a member of the Movimento Sociale Italiano. That was the explicitly kind of pro-Mussolini, pro-fascist party in Italy in the immediate post-war era. I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people said that the term Movimento Sociale Italiano, so the Italian social movement, its initials were MSI. A lot of people thought that was a weird term for like those people who were nostalgic from Mussolini to choose. And they thought what it actually stood for was Mussolini se immortale. That is, Mussolini, you're immortal, right? I mean, they thought it was like explicitly about you know, trying to keep the legacy of Mussolini alive. Then the MSI in the 1970s, 80s, morphed into what is called the Alleanza Nazionale, that is the National Alliance. And that's actually where Maloney got her start. She was part of the sort of governing coalition of the Alleanza Nazionale. And to this day, her political party, which is called Fratelli d'Italia, that's, that's the title, actually, of Italy's national anthem, the Brothers of Italy. At its heart, it has this three-colored flame on their symbol. That's green, red, and white, which are the colors of the Italian flag. The flame is considered a reference to the eternal flame, at the tomb of Benito Mussolini. Now, look, I mean, Maloney has done everything she possibly can to distance herself from that fascist heritage. She said in a recent interview that fascist, fascism is consigned to history. It's not part of the present anymore. And she has said that she is like a Tory in the UK or a Republican in the States. Nevertheless, the fact that she has this fascist pedigree has a lot of people concerned. Now, you know, in the abstract, you might think that the person in Italy most alarmed 
by the rise of a coalition led by a post-fascist coalition politician would be Pope Francis, right? Because Pope Francis is a social progressive and he has made nationalist right-wing populism kind of his bet noir. I mean, you know, he has said on multiple occasions that this kind of nationalist populism is a threat to democracy. It is a degradation of political life. And so you might think in the abstract that the Pope and Maloney are on a kind of collision course. But here's the thing. There is at least one issue where the post-fascist politician and the progressive pope might actually be in alignment, and that is Russia. Because here's the thing, the issue du jour in Europe is not whether, you know, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, rather, is a good thing. I mean, everyone is pretty much uniformly against it. The question is how to respond. One option is the line taken by the previous Italian government under Prime Minister Mario Draghi, which is full frontal opposition to Russia and full-throated support for Ukraine. Now, the other option is to say, well, look, we don't like this, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, Vladimir Putin is a fact of life in Europe, and you have to acknowledge that, and you have to, therefore, negotiate, right? A kind of an effort for a negotiated solution. Now, the paradox of the moment is that the most progressive forces in Europe, that is the social liberals, are opposed to a negotiated solution with Putin. They are, you know, vociferously supportive of Ukraine, whereas the social conservatives, who see Putin and Russia as a kind of bulwark against social liberalism in Europe, are more receptive to the idea of a negotiated solution. Now, paradoxically, this is the same position upheld by Pope Francis. Now, admittedly, for very different reasons. You know, Francis's reasons have more to do with the gospel than they have to do with political ideology. They're about, you know, peace being the paramount value. They're about trying to end war, however disagreeable the solution to a conflict may be. But in any event, the plain fact of the matter is that the Italian conservatives and Francis's Vatican agree on one point which is the need to engage Putin and to try to find a negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine. So that even though on multiple issues, from, from immigration to the environment, from social policy to who knows what, the new Italian government and Pope Francis probably will be at odds in many ways. When it comes to the defining European issue of right now, which is what to do about Russia's offensive in Ukraine, they may actually be able to find surprising common ground. We will see how long that lasts. But in any event, you know, I mean, as they always say, politics makes for strange bedfellows, right? And in this one instance, 
this new center-right government in Italy and the kind of center-left regime that Pope Francis represents for the Catholic Church. And let's face it, the Pope and the Prime Minister are the two powers in Italy that actually matter. They may be able to find surprising common ground. All right, next up this week, Weekend at Frankie's. So on Saturday, Pope Francis went to the Italian city of Assisi. Assisi is, of course, famous as the birthplace of St. Francis, the namesake of Pope Francis. This was actually the sixth time that Pope Francis went to the birthplace of his namesake. This time, it was for a meeting of a group that is called the Economy of Francis. Now, the reference there is not to the Pope, it's to the saint, but they're kind of all mixed up together, right? In 2019, Pope Francis sent a letter to young entrepreneurs around the world, basically saying that all of you who are involved in efforts of social change, trying to build an economy that is more sensitive to the poor, more sensitive to the environment, more sensitive to social justice, I want you to meet with me in Assisi next year and we'll work something out. Now, what happened in the meantime was, of course, the COVID pandemic. And so this big conference that was set for 2000, the year to 2020 had to be delayed. Finally, it was put back on the schedule for this year. And so it was able to happen. And so young entrepreneurs from, and kind of young change agents, right? So influencers, entrepreneurs, social activists from Europe and from Africa and from Asia and from North America and from all over the planet, they gathered in Assisi to meet with Pope Francis and they signed a pact. And basically, the idea of this pact is that these young change agents are going to try to work for an economy that is, number one, at the service of the poor, that is, trying to make sure it's an economy of inclusion rather than exclusion. Number two, they're going to work for an economy that is at the service of the environment. So promoting green industries, green startups, and trying to work against, so, you know, for example, fossil fuel industries that are perceived as degrading the environment. And then number three, that is at the service of change. So trying to empower indigenous populations, trying to empower women, trying to empower others who are perceived as having traditionally been excluded from the levers of economic power. That is the pact that Pope Francis went to Assisi to sign. Certainly, the roughly 2,000 young entrepreneurs and change agents who were gathered in Assisi were tremendously excited about it. You know, time will tell, you know, how much difference this actually makes in the operations of the global economy, but it is certainly a signature Pope Francis initiative. Now, the very next day, so 
Pope Francis went back from Assisi to Rome that night. But the very next day, he traveled to the southern Italian city of Matera, which is one of the provincial capitals in a southern Italian region called Basilicata. And ostensibly, he was there to mark the ending of a Eucharistic Congress convened by the Italian bishops. But in reality, he went to Matera because Matera is a symbol of the part of Italy that has traditionally been excluded from the country's economic, political, and social progress. Here's the thing. Italy has only been a unified nation since 1870. In the northern part of Italy, I mean, northern Italy is basically Europe, right? I mean, you're talking about affluence and progress and civilization and all of those things, right? I mean, you walk the streets of Milan or Turin or Venice, any city in northern Italy, you really believe that you are in Europe, right? You will see all the same stores. You will see all the same restaurants. You will see all the same banks. But you go to southern Italy, where Matera is located, you would believe you're in the third world, right? Like, there aren't many banks. There aren't many restaurants. There aren't many great stores. Even the, the urban heart of the city is significantly underdeveloped. I mean, look, here's the thing. We are 152 years after the theoretical unification of Italy. Do you know that Matera, to this day, does not have its own train station that is served by the Italian National Railway? I mean, southern Italy has been systematically excluded from the progress that has gripped most of the rest of the nation. So the fact that Pope Francis went there and that he wanted to wrap the people of Matera in a kind of warm, loving embrace and to suggest his concern and his solicitude was considered a very important statement in Italy about the Pope's attention to what is known here as the Southern Question. The fact that the southern part of the country is just marginalized and excluded. And it's a way for the Pope to say, look, Italy, I would like you to pay attention to this part of the country and to the vicissitudes of the people who live there. And so in that sense, it was tremendously important. Look, by the way, Small reminder, if you go onto the Crux site today, you can find a recipe I posted on Sunday, which is a classic dish of the city of Matera. It's called La Crapiate. It's a great dish that involves beans and cereals and some vegetables. I mean, among other things, it's entirely vegetarian. It's actually vegan. But it's a way for you to demonstrate your own personal concern for people who have kind of been cut out of the deal of the progress of the 21st century hyper-capitalist world. And it's also a way to participate in the Pope's trip on Sunday. I highly recommend it. It's also, by the way, totally delicious. 
should be served with a nice red wine. I encourage that. Check it out. See what you think. All right. Next Italian entree this week, spat over a spot. So there is a new Italian TV commercial, which has actually got a lot of people here in Il Bel Paese sort of upset. The commercial is a kind of riff on the Last Supper. You know, the, the scene from the New Testament when Christ is having his last meal with his apostles before his passion. And so the commercial opens up with a scene that is kind of from, you know, famous from Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper. In other words, all of the apostles on one side of a table, right? Now, they're actually having spaghetti a la carbonara, which is, you know, completely unhistorical. Carbonara, which is this dish with pork and egg and so on. It, it actually dates from the 17th century. But in any event, that's what they're having. One of the apostles says, oh, God, this is so good. It's so creamy. It's tremendous. And then Judas remember the apostle who betrayed Christ, Judas says, well, yeah, but this is the wrong cut of pork. It's pancetta, not guanciale, two different cuts of pork. And then everybody else kind of goes nuts saying, oh, Judas, come on, calm down. Jesus asked Judas to pass the wine. And then this is an ad for an Italian TV company or Italian internet company that compares insurance rates called Seguccio. And the dog, who is the, you know, sort of mascot of Seguccio, the bloodhound, comes on and says, you have the wrong company, then trust us, you know, we'll find the right one for you. Now, you know, you could look at this and say, it's just kind of charming, offbeat sort of way of highlighting what happens when you have the wrong company. But many Italians, and here's the thing, like you might think that it would be fussy clerical types who would get upset about this, but actually no clerics have spoken out. It's been entirely secular commentators who have gotten upset about this, saying this is an offense to the Catholic roots of Italy. And to me, this is a reminder of a plain fact. And the plain fact is, you know, when you have a society that traditionally has been Catholic or that has an important Catholic imprint, you know, you can have decades of secularization, right? You can have the separation of church and state. You can have the adoption of secular policies on multiple fronts. But you know what? At the end of the day, that Catholic gene in your DNA is still going to be there. There is a saying in Italian, it goes like this, scherzo con i fanti ma lascia stare i santi. What it basically means, okay, so fanti is like the, literally it's the Italian word for infantry, like guys who are in the army, but it kind of means human realities. And sort of what it means is, you can joke around with human stuff, but you don't screw around with the sacred. Thing of it is, you know, despite anti-clericalism, despite secularism, despite it all, that instinct 
is still really alive in Italian culture. And it's not just Italy. I mean, that is true in many different parts of the world. And I guess what it says to me is that at the end of the day, we can lament the rise of secularism. We can lament the rise of church-state separation. We can lament all of that. But we should still also be grateful that despite everything, that religious instinct is still there. And in the most unexpected moments, even in reaction to a ridiculous TV commercial, it can flare up and make itself felt. All right, finally this week, we end in China. 90-year-old Cardinal Joseph Zinn has been charged under Hong Kong's new anti-sedition law not with the capital crime of sedition, which would carry a jail term and even theoretically capital punishment, but he's been charged with a much lesser crime of failing to register a pro-democracy group of which he was a sponsor under the Chinese system. That actually carries only a fine, not a jail term, so it is kind of a misdemeanor. But nevertheless, the arrest of Cardinal Zinn in the company of four other pro-democracy activists has been considered a kind of shot across the bow from China to the people of Hong Kong saying, if you resist our attempt to bring Hong Kong more thoroughly into the orbit of Beijing, we are going to crack heads, right? So it has caused alarm. Now, another thing that has caused alarm among some Catholics is the fact that neither Pope Francis personally nor the Vatican he leads has been especially outspoken in the defense of Cardinal Zinn. They've kind of let it fly below radar. And this has been linked by critics to the fact that the Vatican is trying to renew a deal with Beijing over the appointment of Catholic bishops in China that is very controversial among certainly more conservative Catholics because they see it as giving away the baby with the bathwater to Beijing, that is, allowing the Communist Party of China to determine who becomes a Catholic bishop in China. Now, up to this point, Critics of the Vatican's quote-unquote silence on sin have been mostly well-known Pope Francis critics, right? So Cardinal Walter Brandmuller of Germany, who was a signatory, who was one of the four dubia cardinals who beat up Francis over Amoris Laetitia, the idea of giving communion to divorced and civilly remarried Catholics, or another German cardinal, Gerhard Mueller, who was removed by Pope Francis from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith because he was considered a doctrinal opponent of the Pope. But what happened this week is that a very different cardinal, Fernando Falloni, Italian Cardinal Fernando Falloni, who was a career Vatican diplomat and therefore, by definition, generally very cautious, who was also considered a moral hero of the Catholic Church because he was the papal ambassador in Iraq when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003. He was the only 
Western ambassador who did not abandon his post. He stayed put to demonstrate his concern and solidarity with the people of Iraq. In 2006, he narrowly escaped a bombing attack on the embassy. I mean, and Filoni has never been identified with the anti-Francis critics. He's never been part of that crowd. Yet this week, he wrote a letter to the editor of the official newspaper of the Italian bishops, L'Avenire, the word means the future, in which he said of Zen, look, Zen may be intemperate. He may be a little, he used the word angular, which is kind of an Italian way of saying he may be a little cantankerous. But nevertheless, he said, Zen is a great guy and he deserves our full support. Now, that probably will dial up the pressure on Pope Francis and the Vatican as the Zen trial plays out to be a little more foursquare in support of the cardinal. Because here's the thing, if you're going to take a poll in the College of Cardinals today as to which prince of the church has the, more, the most moral authority, Filoni would probably figure somewhere near the top. And the fact that he has come out demanding that the church be more supportive of Zen, that probably is going to carry some weight in a way that the other protests at this point have not. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, cruxnow.com. Thanks for watching. One programming note for the next couple of weeks, my wife Elise and I are going to be on the road. We're going to be in the United States. I've, well, I've got some appointments there. We will still be recording our show, so we will still be here at the same bat time, same bat channel. I cannot promise you it's going to be the same audio and video quality as when we're able to record here in our studio, but we are going to do our level best to bring you the latest and greatest in the Catholic world. Over the course of the next seven days, my charge to you is stay safe, Stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.